Well, good morning. As the ushers take this morning's offering, um, Joe decided he wanted the week off or something, and uh, he's going to have me preach today. So I made him pray twice. So, uh, <laughs> so otherwise, he'd feel you know left out or something. Um, but this Christmas season, what we're doing is we're going through each of the Gospels and looking at the Christmas story in each of uh, the, the Gospels. Last week, we went through uh, the Gospel of John, so if you weren't here, uh, Pastor Joe did a great job showing to us that uh, through the text of the beginning of the Gospel of John, that Jesus was at the beginning, that he is God, he is Emmanuel, uh, which means God with us. And uh, that's good to keep in mind as we go through this morning. Today we're going to look at Matthew uh, and uh, take a look at uh, Jesus as king. And we're going to start right at the beginning of Matthew chapter 1. Now, as, as I get ready to, to preach and like look at stuff, I like to go through commentary. I read the text a lot. I go through commentaries. I do a bunch of research. And then kind of towards the end, I look up other sermons to see what, what other people have, you know, see if I'm like crazy or not. And <laughs> what I found was uh, when people, when you type in like the chapter 1, sermons on chapter 1 of Matthew or the beginning of Matthew uh, kind of thing, uh, when you just look for sermons in that 95% of them begin at verse 18. And there's like this small number that, that have the actual, the beginning of the thing. And that just blew me away because uh, they're like skipping 17 verses of the Bible. Like, I just, like they're like, we're going to begin in Matthew this morning and everyone turn to chapter 1, verse 18. And I'm like, that's not the beginning, you know? <laughs> like, come on, man. So we're going to go through the beginning of Matthew, which is probably something that you've skipped a bunch of times in your reading. I bet you, if you read the, the Bible a lot and you've gone through the Gospels and you take a look at what's in there, it's probably fairly certain that you have skipped uh, that first section of Matthew because it is a genealogy. And if you know anything about genealogies, that's just a list of names, right? It's, it's Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Ned, and father of the father of father of father of father. And you're like, wow, that's, I don't even, this is a huge list of names. And uh, we start to think maybe this isn't valuable uh, because I know these names I probably, or maybe you're like, I have no clue who these names are. So either way, uh, why read them? You know, let's just start where the story begins, which is down in 18. Yeah, but by doing that, you're skipping something very important. It is scripture, and therefore it has extreme value. Um, there's something uh, that is accomplished in this genealogy that is super important to understanding the purpose of Matthew's gospel, and it's making a huge, bold claim about who Jesus is. So don't skip it. Go through the genealogy. We're going to go through today. I'm not going to read it because, like we just said, it is just a bunch of names. But we'll talk about it. We'll, we'll kind of look at the format of it and point out some names. But I encourage you to read through it later and to, to pull up what you know about each of these names. And if you don't recognize one, look it up. We've got this huge chunk of Bible back here, and they're all in there. So uh, let's uh, begin with some prayer, and then we'll begin. Dear Father, thank you so much for being our mighty God and for using every part of your word. God, we thank you that, uh, that we can come uh, to the Bible and um, just discover more and more about you. Father, we pray that you speak today, that you open our ears to listen and hear your word in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in high school, I had a history teacher, and she was a crazy old lady, but she was super on top of her. She knew her material really well. And she was really frustrated the, the, the year that I took history from her because she didn't have 
uh, they had changed the curriculum or something, and there was, she had a lot less room to do what she wanted to do, apparently. I had no idea. I was the first year I was there, right? And so what she would do is, like, they want you to know all these names, so here's the names, and she'd put them up, and then she'd go, but I was just, I think it's more fun, so we're going to talk about this guy and you know, tell some stories, and she, I learned some really cool stories uh, from there, from that class, but that I bet everyone else was sleeping. I can't remember. But uh, like in the Civil War, she was like, this guy was president at this time. You need to know those dates. But also, while he was president, they were doing this battle. And during this battle, they would use turkey calls to talk to each other. And then the British people didn't understand what was going on. So then they, they could get raided really easily because they just thought there was turkeys out there. But it was, it was, it was really cool. It was really cool. And so she had all these inside stories and stuff. And, and I was like, wow, okay, history can be less than really boring. I mean, it's kind of a trope, right? That that history is the worst class. It's so boring because it's whatever. It's, it's in the past. When I went to college, I took, uh, I had to take history again. It's like one of the prerequisites. You have to, uh, one of your generals, right? You got to take some history classes. And I took this history class from this guy named Professor Steve Getz. And he was the sweetest man I probably ever knew when I was in college. Uh, and he was so passionate about teaching history, which is like, why, right? But, but I was in this class, and I already had this, this sense that history could be interesting, and so I was kind of ready, and I was, I was thinking, and the class was really great, and I loved it, and I got a lot out of it, and I did really well in that class, but no one else did. Everyone did really poorly, and they could forget stuff all the time, and it's because they would sleep during class, and <laughs> this one day, I remember very specifically, because both the people next to me were sleeping, and they were, they were totally out, and Steve was up there, and Professor professor gets and he was telling the story and then uh, you know teaching the class we we're going through american history so he was talking about natives in this battle and what was going on and all of a sudden he got really emotional and he kind of got choked up and he had to pause and he was just like get really choked up and i was like what is this this is awesome so i was like so engaged like man something's happening and i'm not hearing it and what he's saying but something's going on back there right so i raised my hand and he was like blown away that that had happened because no one ever did that uh and i was like why is this so important to you? Like, I could tell, you know, and he's like, well, he like took a breath, and then he started telling this, like, side backstory to the battle, and it was this love story between one of the soldiers and one of the natives, and, like, it wasn't part of, he, but he knew it, and so when he was talking through these names, he had all this, like, background information and all these people, and I was like, wow, you need to do that more often, because that was way more interesting than this guy beat that guy and blah, 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 right? So I went, I talked to him later, because I was like, there's got to be more. And everybody was sleep and so I went and talked to him later in his office, and I was like, I saw, you know, you got a little, you know, emotional during class, and I'm curious about that. And he's like, well, I was like, was it that story that you told about the, and he's like, no, whatever, I know all of those, and I know a lot of them. He goes, but I was just looking out at the class, and no one cared, and everyone was sleeping. And he was just like broken by that, uh, and, and it came, he couldn't hide it. He was such a tender, sweet guy. And he was like, I just don't even know, you know, why I, like, try to tell all these other stories and make it interesting. And he's like, I'm not, why, why am I even doing this? And I was like, you're doing it for me. <laughs> Keep doing it, please. Like, oh, man, it was so much more interesting. I ended up taking two more classes from him that I didn't have to take that weren't a part of my major at all because I was just so intrigued by his knowledge base and, what, and everything that he knew and how passionate he was about this subject that most people don't care about at all. I think... That when we come to genealogies in the Bible, we come with this, it's a history class mentality. And we assume that there's nothing there of value. It's not a part of the, we think that it's not a part of the story. We think that God's not speaking through it in some way, and so we skip it. 
I'm, I'm probably, I feel as though this first section of the book of Matthew is the most skipped section in the entire uh, gospel that Matthew wrote. And that's terrible. Because like I said, he's making some bold claims here. We've got to remember the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, genealogies were always working to, con- to communicate multiple layers of information. So it's not just, I mean, obviously they're giving us like lineage, like priestly lineage or royal lineage to show uh, who was king and whatnot, but there's also theological matters going on in the background. And we've got to keep that uh, in, in mind as we look through Matthew's uh, genealogy because he's doing the exact same thing. And knowing who's being referenced and the story that's attached to that name is extremely important when going through a genealogy because they would, they would put names in there and leave certain names out uh, depending on, on the point they were trying to get across. And we'll talk about that in a little bit here. So let's go ahead, start verse 1 in the book of Matthew, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, and take a look here. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now that sentence is full. And it probably doesn't read like it's super full, but it is. He's making some pretty good statements here. The first one I just want to point out is that word that is usually translated genealogy because he lists a genealogy is the same like root-based word that we get the word Genesis. Yeah? So it's, the, it's very similar in the Greek. It sounds very similar to the Hebrew. Um, and I can't, you'll have to ask John Schreier how to pronounce it, so I'm not even going to try, but it's close. It's similar to uh, Genesis. So that sentence could read, the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. And that should pull some thoughts to mind, right? What happened in Genesis? Well, the world was created. Something new happened. God spoke, and cool things happened, right? And right here at the beginning of the New Testament, that is happening. Something new is happening. Uh, The same word is used uh, later when it says... um, um, down in the back, the very, uh, verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. That word there is translated uh, birth, but it's the same word, Genesis. Now the Genesis of Jesus Christ took place in this way, and then we get the story of how he was born. So the genealogy is capped with this. This is a new beginning. Let's take a look. All right, so there's two names mentioned in this first sentence. And there's a bold claim. It says that Jesus is the Messiah. And that's what the genealogy is going to try and prove here. That he is the Messiah that was spoken of through all the scriptures. He is the king. All right, the first name we're going to take a look at, we're going to work backwards here, is Abraham. It says that Jesus is the son of Abraham. All right, obviously he wasn't. Who was the son of Abraham? Anybody know? Isaac, nice. I mean, I left a small pause there. No one jumped on it. That's fine. Uh, Isaac was the son, uh, was the literal son of Abraham, right? But by doing that, by saying that he's the son of Abraham, the author is trying to connect Jesus to the, the story of Abraham. And what was the main, we just talked about this this summer, the, we went through Abraham. So what was the main thing that happened between God and Abraham in the story of Abraham? You can answer, I won't sign you up for anything. What was it? Yeah, he made a promise. He made a covenant with Abraham. And what was that promise? That he would have a son, but through that son, what would happen? He would bless all the people and all nations. So he's connecting here that Jesus is the son that was promised to Abraham. In the book of Hebrews, we get that Abraham was, uh, could look ahead into the future and see what God was going to do and knew that, it, that the time was coming. And what Matthew is saying here is the time is now. The promise from Abraham, this is when it's going to be fulfilled. Yes, he got Isaac, 
right now is when it's really coming and it's really going to happen. By linking Jesus to Abraham, Matthew is bringing the reader's attention to the promise and the rescue plan for the world. So you can't just read the name Abraham and move on. you got to go, why did he put that there? Why did he put it in the beginning? Because he's trying to connect to those promises. He wants us to see that Jesus is the long-awaited son of Abraham who will bring God's blessing to all of humanity. Now, how is he going to do that? Well, let's take a step back in the sentence, and who's the son there? Or who does he say he's the son of there? David. It says that he's the son of David. Now, Jesus' identity as a descendant of David is a huge focus in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. This is the first of ten times that it comes up. So Matthew says that Jesus is the son of David ten times uh, in, in the Gospel. That's a lot. You repeat anything ten times, it's got to be important, right? Son of David uh, is supposed to bring us and, and, and get us to think about the David story, right? David was king over Israel. He was the best king over Israel, right? Uh, it, he was a, God, a man after God's own heart. And what he's saying here is Jesus is uh, David's son. He is in the royal line of David. He is the heir to the throne. So just like Abraham's name pointed to this uh, uh, belonging amongst the pizza people of Abraham, wow, uh, belonging amongst the people of Israel, there we go, I just wanted to say pizza for some reason, uh, <laughs> I'm hungry, I don't know, all right, David's name tells us uh, that Jesus was royalty, so he's amongst Israel, and he's, he's uh, belonging to them, but he's also royalty, he's just not one of, of many, all right, the second section begins with David, and sure enough, right, God promised, had a similar promise to David, that he was going to have a son, um, about a son. It's found in 2 Samuel ver chapter 7, verse 12 through 16. I'll read it. This is the promise that God makes to David. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body. I will establish his kingdom. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So you can see that, the, that Matthew is connecting Jesus to David's royal throne, and Jesus is going to be the one on the throne forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, in, in the, the Gospel of Matthew here, it's traced through Solomon. You can read it. Uh, it says that David was the father of Solomon. All right? In Luke's Gospel, he traces it through Nathan, because uh, Solomon, actually, his line ends at the time of the, the Babylonian exile. Uh, it, gets, it gets lost there. And so he, his line doesn't continue to stay on the throne, but Nathan's does. And there's a reason for that, and we're going to look at it later. So ne Luke is looking at the actual um, bloodline, right? So where did the blood go? And that traces through, through Mary. But uh, what we're concerned with here, with Matthew, is is Jesus an heir to the throne? Because Nathan wasn't the king. Solomon was. They were brothers. So we're following the royal, the royal line here. said that. All right. Now we've got to take a little bit of a look at the structure. And if you love math class, this is going to be for you. Uh, don't worry. There's not a lot of math. We're going to do two editions. That's it. All right. If you notice in your Bible, there are three paragraphs, right, uh, in, this, in this section uh, through 16. So you got, that's where the names are. Verse 2 through 16, that's where all the names are. There's three sections. It's pretty obvious. Those are broken down into 14 generations. So there's 14 generations. The next paragraph begins with another 14 generations. And the next one after that is the next 14 generations. 
Now, the reason that that is important is because the Israelites would assign value to numbers, right? Uh, certain numbers had a lot more uh, importance and value, and so they would work it into their, li- their, um, their literature. Uh, obviously, the number seven is super important. God created the world in seven days. That's right. And every seven days, what would they do? They'd have six days of work, and they'd have one day of rest, right? That was the Sabbath. That Sabbath pattern is over and over and over and over and over and over in the Bible. It happens over and over. All of the festivals were, were mapped out in this pattern of seven. All of the years were, were mapped out in this pattern of seven. Uh, it, it's just so ingrained into, into their society and their way of life. Um, it's a really cool study. If you wanted to study something cool, just look at uh, the Sabbath day and, and study that and how that is just ingrained into the way of Jewish thinking and thought. And it, was, it would have been so obvious to the Jews that Matthew was writing to that he has uh, broken down Jesus' um, genealogy into this pattern of seven because 14 is two sevens, right? Two sevens equal 14. Now, another layer here is the Israelites would, uh, they didn't have, uh, like, a numerical system. They would use the letters, their, uh, there's their letters to um, do math. So they had each consonant in the Hebrew alphabet was also assigned a number, right? So, like, for us, A would be 1 and 2 would be B, right? Um, the name David, if you use that, their system, uh, the the beginning letter, um, would you get to ask John Schreier again? He's the linguist. I have no idea. I could try to say how they're supposed to be said, but I'll screw it up. So the first letter was, had the numerical value of four. The second had a numerical value of six. And the last one had a numerical value of four. Add those together. You get 14. Interesting. And notice that David is at the beginning of the second section of 14. So you get 14 generations and then David. So Matthew's genealogy is literally laid out, 14, 14, 14, or David, David, David. He's just screaming at us. Jesus is heir to the throne of David. Now, he went to pretty great lengths to make this happen. Uh, He actually left out um, some names to make sure that he had this 14, 14, 14 thing. Now, before you freak out and think, wow, this is a scandal. They left things out. You can't leave names out of a genealogy. You're messing it up, Matthew. This is like not how we do history. Well, you got to remember, they're not writing this to give us history. They're writing it to, to portray a theological idea, to give us some more information, to show how God has been working uh, uh, through, through the lives here. I'm going to find my spot. And so he, le- he leaves a couple names out to get that 14 pattern. Now, we kind of do this on our own life, too, right? And here, here's the best example I could come up with. I know who my dad is. I know who my grandfather is. And I've heard the name of my great-grandfather, right? But beyond that, it's pretty much lost to me. I have no idea. But they have this thing called Ancestry.com. Have anybody heard of that? You can send in your DNA, and then they figure out who you are and, like, all the people you're related to or whatever. And you got to add a bunch of information. I think Courtney's done it, like, ten times, so you can ask her about it. She's got her whole thing figured out. And uh, I don't. I don't have a clue. But some of us know more of our, our, our genealogy, right, more of our family tree than others, right? And if you're, there was someone really important in your family tree, right, would you, would you name that person, or would you just, like, throw in all these other names, too? You'd be like, oh. I mean, I gave the example in the last service. Uh, Genghis Khan was extremely prolific when he was running around ravaging the, the Asia area, and so there are a lot of descendants of Genghis Khan. So for some reason, you figured out and you learned that you were within this line of Genghis Khan. Would you say, 
Uh, I was the, I'm the son of Jason. You might skip him, right? You might, you might jump back a few and go, well, I'm a descendant of Genghis Khan. Oh, yeah, right? Because it, it draws importance and attention to that, right? If for some reason you found out that you were in the, the royal line of, of the, the British monarch, right? You're related to the Queen of England. Would you go like, well, you know, I've got some fancy people in my genealogy. I'm related to the Queen. Probably. You'd point out the, the famous ones, right? Another example would be like uh, George Washington. Uh, some people refer to him as the father of uh, America, whatever. I mean, he obviously wasn't. He was just the first president, whatever. But we use that term father a little bit differently. So he's, he's using, uh, leaving out a couple names to create this, to be able to create this pattern so that he can really scream at us, David, 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 right? Uh, Jesus is the royal uh, heir to the throne. Another thing that he does, um, he, uh, just to remind you, ancient geologies, genealogies were making were ways of making theological claims, and Matthew's readers would have understood exactly what he was doing right away, and he would have understood why. There's another interesting thing um, with numbers that he does. I already said that uh, 14 is 7 doubled, and what is um, three 14s broken down into 7, that gives you six sevens, right? Six days of creation, and then one day of rest. So the last 14 ends with Jesus and that puts us in the time of the, seven, the next seven. So we've got six throughout all of God's uh, working with humanity and then we finally get to Jesus and now we are living in the, year, in the seven, which is just it's, it's such a beautiful and bold claim to make because something has changed, something is different, the work is done, the Messiah is here. And now we get to rest in, in the peace and, and the, the glory of, of the time of the Messiah. The Messiah is a king who is supposed to bring Israel and the nation's peace, justice, and rest. And that is just beautiful. And he didn't only just make uh, numerical adjustments. There's, there's two other adjustments that I think are, are super intriguing. And I didn't, I didn't think I had time to say them in the first service, which I think I have less time now, but I'm going to do it anyway. And then there's two schools of thought. If you look through, and you're really familiar with the Old Testament, and you're really familiar with all the kings and things that are going on, as you read through this, you'll notice that two names are wrong. Uh, and there's two schools of thought. One is that they're just alternate spelling. So there must be an alternate spelling because obviously Matthew wouldn't get anything wrong. And so uh, these are just alternate spellings of these other kings. All right? The first example is the name Asha and Amon. So those are the two examples. He has written in there Asha and Amen. It's in verse, um, one of them is in verse 10, and the other one is in verse 7. The names that should uh, be in there are Asha and Amen. But he switched them to Asaf, A-S-A-P-H, is the first one, who, surprisingly, is a, a poet that's featured in the book of Psalms. So we switched the name of a king to be this poet from the book of the Psalms. And the next one, he, he switched Amon to be Amos, which is a prophet. That's actually a prophet that talks about Jesus quite a bit and the restoration of Israel. So I think what's happening, and I'm not alone, um, like I said, there's two schools of thought. They could be alternate spellings, but what could also be happening is that Matthew is kind of winking at us here. And he's saying, he knows that his readers will, will pick up on this, that those names aren't right. 
The, the names uh, are not those kings. That's not how you spell it. He probably had the Book of Chronicles uh, uh, nearby, you know. Uh, he probably had it memorized. That's how they did things back then. And the point here is that Jesus doesn't just fulfill Israel's royal hopes, but also the hope of the Psalms, because this mention of this, this poet from the Book of Psalms, and the hope of the prophets, by putting a, a prophet in his genealogy. We know that that's not the king who was there, but he's winking at us. He's saying Jesus fulfills not only uh, the royal lineage, but also the hope of the Psalms and the hope of the prophets. Jesus is from a line of a kingly succession that culminates in the rich tradition of worship and prophecy of Israel, as well as their, their royalty. So in this way, he's, he's showing that all of Scripture... All of scripture, all of the stories of the kings, all of the history with God, all of the psalms and worship uh, poetry in, in, in the Old Testament, all of the prophecy from, from all of the different prophets are all pointing to, all leading up to, and all fulfilled in one man, Jesus the Christ. It is so awesome. Just, just by the way that he laid it out. He's just screaming at us. Jesus is the culmination of all of the Old Testament. This huge story uh, between God and his people. Jesus fulfills it. Jesus is the end. There's another thing that is really important and we definitely need to point out. This is a, a genealogy, like most royal genealogies, they trace the male lineage, right? So uh, you can see the pattern right at the beginning there. Um, I'll, I'll start with David. And David was the father of Solomon. And Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of... I skipped something. Are you looking at your Bibles? What did I skip? David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. What's going on? Ooh, he broke the pattern. At the beginning, verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Well, who's that? So he breaks the pattern four times to mention four different women. And this is not something you do especially if you're trying to, the, to, to remember and keep track of a royal line. You don't mention the women. Why do that? But it's even more crazy than that because all of those four women that are mentioned are, are associated with potential sex scandals. Some of them are pretty obvious sex scandals. Tamar, that one I just said, uh, uh, was Perez's mother, but also his sister-in-law. That's a crazy story. It's in Genesis 38. Give it a read. All right? <laughs> Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute. And she made it into the, the genealogy of the Messiah. She was, uh, to tell you the story, every time you bring up a name, right, you got to remember their story. She was a prostitute in the time of, of Joshua when they were circling, when they came to the promised land and they were trying to get into this city. They sent in spies and, and Rahab was there and she um, trusted the spies and, and helped them escape. And now she's made it into the genealogy of the Messiah. That's amazing. Ruth was a Moabite. She wasn't even, she wasn't an Israelite at all. And she kind of got grafted in through this, this weird thing by following her, her mother-in-law. And it's a cool story. She's got her own book in the Old Testament. Read that one. Bathsheba isn't even mentioned by name because the author is blatantly trying to point out that her husband was murdered by King David. The best king we've ever had is a murderer and a liar and a sneak. Uriah was, was a big deal. He was, a, was one of the mighty, famous men. And yet his wife is stolen from him by the king. Matthew could have highlighted 
the, the matriarchs of the faith, right? The ones that are, that are held up in higher esteem. He could have mentioned Sarah, right? Abraham's wife. He could have mentioned Rebecca or Rachel, the, the matriarchs. But instead, he mentions Canaanites, prostitutes, a Moabite woman, and someone whose, whose husband was murdered by the king. He, he mentions women who, who would have blatantly and quickly and obviously been associated with Israel's sin and covenant failure. And this is in the genealogy of the Messiah. He's making a huge statement here. Uh, Frederick Berner writes this, Matthew will later teach us that Jesus came not for the righteous, but for the sinners. That's Matthew 9. But already in his genealogy, Matthew is teaching us that Jesus came not only for, but through sinners. Even King David sinned. Romans 8 said that God sent his son in the likeness of sinful man. In Hebrews 2.11, he tells us that Jesus was not ashamed to call us brothers. Martin Luther comments this. He says, Christ was the kind of person who's not ashamed of sinners. In fact, he puts them in his family tree. Matthew wants us to, to notice these women and to realize that, that the story of the Old Testament, that he's been using all types of people to move his plan forward. And that, can include, that includes us. The portrait is an is inclusive and expansive uh, kingdom that will appear beyond Matthew's genera, gene, genealogy into the rest of his gospel. He'll continue to include rejects and outsiders into his family. Think of the disciples. Who did he call to be disciples? Tax collectors, sailors. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't pick the, the super awesome religious people who were upright. He picked the ones uh, that were on the outside. He brings these non-Israelite strand into the family that will expand into this wider uh, uh, family later. At the very end of Matthew's gospel, he tells the disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. They're not Israelites. They're not supposed to be a part of this, but they are, we are now. We are now. That's amazing and beautiful. There's another thing that I think is, is quite wonderful, um, this idea of bringing in those who are on the outside. We're tracing the line of Joseph, and you look at the very end, right? I said that he broke the pattern for these, these other women, and I think it's setting it up so that he can break the pattern one more time. Right down at the bottom, it says, And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So Joseph wasn't even his biological father. But he gets, the, he gets to be the heir of the king of David because of this. Uh, uh, Garland says this in his commentary. It is the acknowledgement of a child by the father that officially makes the child his son. Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, is thereby grafted into the Davidic line through Joseph's juridical recognition of him as his son. So by, by Joseph saying, yes, I, you are my son, you weren't. I, he was going to divorce Mary, right? You know the story. She, 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 he found out that she was pregnant, and, and then he found out, and he's like, oh, man, I, gotta get, I can't do this. I, I can't be engaged to, to someone who's having a sex scandal, right? I can't do that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just divorce her quietly so that she doesn't get a bunch of shame, and I don't get a bunch of shame. But then God came to him in a dream and said, no, 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 this is a God thing. Trust her. It's through the Holy Spirit. Take him as your son and name him Jesus which means God saves. And so Joseph does. And so by doing that, Jesus was grafted into Joseph's family, which was the royal line of David. And Jesus does that for us. 
Uh, we are not a part of the royal line. We are not a part of the Israelites. We are uh, what we would call Gentiles, right? We're outside. But the Bible also tells us that those who call on the name of Jesus, who claim him to be king and lord in their life, are grafted in and called sons and daughters of the king. That is amazing. That is beautiful. And you get what, uh, what you shouldn't have gotten. Like Joe said in his prayer, we, we didn't deserve it. We don't, we don't have any way of earning any of, anything like that. Uh, but Jesus grafts us in because he calls us, names us as child. The human genealogical possibilities have been completely and completely exhausted. And God now steps in. And this divine intervention marks a new beginning where there's continuity with the past, but an unmistakable discontinuity. Something new has happened. We have entered the seventh section. With Christianity, religious identity is fundamentally detached from nation, family, male, or female. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter uh, what family you're a part of. It doesn't matter if you're a man. It doesn't matter if you're a woman. If you call in the name uh, of Jesus and, and claim him to be king and lord over your life, to call him savior, you are grafted in. And so as we read through this genealogy of Matthew, we see the royal lineage, and it's one that's going to bring the blessing of Abraham to the world. It's, it's one that proves that David is, is of the roy, that Jesus is the royal line of David, that everything that Israel has been waiting for, everything that Scripture has been leading up to and pointing at is happening in the man of Jesus Christ. He will be the king of Israel who blesses all nations and will reign forever and will bring in outsiders just like us to be a part of his story. So I want to ask you, do you live your life in acknowledgement that there is a king who is worthy of that title? Who, if, if you call in the name of Jesus, right, and you say, no, yeah, you're Lord and Savior and you're king over my life, do you live your life with the king's will in mind? Or do you act and behave and live in a way that says that you're the king of your own life and you make your own decisions and you're going to do whatever you want to do? As we, as we walk into Christmas and as we, as we think about and we're celebrating, right, Jesus is king coming to this earth, Emmanuel with us, do you just live your own life like he doesn't exist? As you, as you uh, try to think of what kind of gifts you're going to give the people in your family and, and uh, how you're going to celebrate, do you even consider the will of the king who says that we're supposed to take care of the widow and the orphan around us? Do you consider that, uh, that he calls us to be generous with everyone who has a need and not just those that we already know and love? He tells us it's easy to love someone that you know and that loves you back. But what he wants us to do is love those that we don't know, that need it, that, that maybe we hate. Do you consider the will of the king in your life? Or are you just the king of your own life? Do you trust in your own wisdom like Abraham did? And he was promised a son, and, oh, I'm going to figure it out myself. Sarah and I are old, so let's figure this out, right? That worked out terribly. Or are, are you going to behave like David and do whatever you can to sneakily get what you want and, and pretend that everything's fine and, and steal? And That didn't work out great either. Or are you going to trust in the will of the king? Because David has shown us through this genealogy that he is worthy. He is worthy of our trust. He is worthy of our love because he is included uh, all sorts of people, and he has, he has a claim to the throne forever, forever. Jesus is merciful and just, and he is willing to, to accept you, to call you a son and daughter, to graft you in and give you everything when you deserve 
nothing. So as we go through Christmas, try to think of the will of the king. Don't just think of your own life and your own will. Let's pray together. Dear God, thank you so much for, for being our mighty God and for, for loving us in such a, such a wonderful way. Father, we thank you that even through uh, something that at first glance can seem boring, <laughs> God, that you can teach us, that you can guide us, that you can give us um, wisdom into how you're working in this life. And Father, we pray that as we celebrate Christmas and as we live our life, Father, that we can remember you. Uh, that we can not only remember you, Father, but we can default uh, to your will instead of our own. God, we pray that you give us boldness in, in how to do that and help us to, to find ways in which we can value your words, your way of living, and your life over our own. Jesus, we love you. Amen.